Welcome back to the International Chronicles of the Chester Fritz Professors. This is the second part of Hunt in the Romanian Hills. If you haven't listened to the first part, I would encourage you to visit chroniclesofchesterfritz.com for the first part of this story, as well as other stories. The story begins back in a small village of Dragobista, where Arnold and Pete have one more chance to understand the forces that have rendered the people of the village sterile and starving. Arnold pressed the blade of his pocket knife against the greasy sausage, slicing a bit of meat to pair with a similarly sliced hunk of cheese and torn bit of bread. As he ate the improvised breakfast, he looked down at the village of Dragovista. From his perch on a rocky outcropping, he could see the entire tapestry of the quasi-medieval village, the cluster of irregularly placed houses that made up the core of the town thinned the further one moved out from the church. Gardens became bigger in outlying huts. Gardens eventually morphed into farmsteads. A wide, slow-moving river wandered through the heart of the valley, curling north of the village before disappearing into the mountain pass. Arnold and Pete had returned to Dragovista early that morning. The valley had still been buried in shadow when Pete had downshifted the trabi for the descent into the valley. A thick coat of dew beaded the grass, and the whole village had the smell of freshly turned earth. There was a certain stillness to the place that Arnold found uncomfortable. The place thrummed with silence. They hadn't been able to return to the village right away. Pete had a lecture he was scheduled to deliver at the university in Cluj, and Arnold had wanted to secure a specific set of medical supplies before returning to Dragovista. With hindsight, the effort had been unnecessary, as Arnold's plan to conduct physical examinations of local villagers had floundered almost immediately. He had hoped to draw on Agrippina's language skills, and equally importantly, her medical qualifications to conduct physical examinations of local villagers. Arnold had debated the ethics of practicing medicine in Romania, and concluded that he was on shaky ground. The nearly three days at the Red Cross camp were a product of necessity, but absent the natural disaster, he would prefer to operate in conjunction with locally licensed physicians. Yet, they had found Agrippina's hut empty, and no indication of when she might be back. Pete had left to examine church records related to marriage and death rates, leaving Arnold to wait on the old woman's return. Arnold had paced around the hut for a little over an hour before deciding to hike into the surrounding hills. It seemed pointless to wait, and there was little he could do on his own. He could not initiate medical examinations of the villagers without support, and he could not aid Pete in his research beyond fetching files when needed. Exploration of the outer hills had seemed unlikely to yield any real insights into the medical affliction of the village, but neither would waiting for Agrippina to return. He had turned toward the hills around the village because the idea of exploring the land both fascinated and scared him. The great plains of the Dakotas had offered few chances to hike in actual hills, and there was something mysterious about the terrain. Arnold cut a last bit of sausage and began packing up his breakfast. He wiped the pocket knife blade as clean as he could manage, closed it, and slipped it into his pants pocket. He wrapped up the remaining sausage, cheese, and bread, tucking them away in his backpack. From the backpack, Arnold withdrew a water bottle and tucked it under his arm. Reaching again into the pack, Arnold extracted a fistful of small plastic tubes, from which he measured out a half-dozen small pills. He had managed to get the drug names translated at the local hospital, and he was familiar enough with most of the medications to not worry about side effects, although the potential for drug interactions was always a concern. Arnold swallowed a mix of antidepressants, a mild muscle relaxant, an antipsychotic, and a stimulant. The stimulant was replaced with a sedative for his evening dose. Arnold tucked the pill bottles and water bottle back into his backpack and closed it up. It was a bizarre cocktail, but it had been surprisingly effective. 
He scanned the valley for an alternate pathway back down to the village. It had been an hour hike up into the hills, and while he was not opposed to retracing his steps, it seemed like a wasted opportunity to take the same route back to the village. As Arnold scanned the valley, he began to recognize an aberrant topography that ran the full length of the valley south of the river. There was a network of elevated mounds that lined the valley floor. It was difficult to see beneath forest cover, buildings, and cropland, but from a distance, a forking, branching structure of mounds was visible beneath it all. Arnold tracked the mounds as the minor capillaries joined to larger vessels and then joined further to a central artery. Arnold's eyes honed in on the hill, perhaps three miles off, that seemed to be the source of the network. It was strange enough a feature that he decided it would be worth an investigation. Arnold shouldered the backpack and took off at a light jog down the moderately maintained dirt trail, heading east toward the source of the topographical anomaly. As he worked his way around the perimeter of the valley, Arnold faced a cycle of brutal uphill stretches, followed by exhilarating periods of pounding down dirt tracks, jumping roots, and pinballing off of rocks and trees as he fought the accelerating power of gravity. The last stretch of his journey was an upward climb. He resigned himself to hiking rather than running the final stretch, giving himself time to cool down and catch his breath. As a basic precaution, he kept his eyes downcast on the trail. Consequently, the tower keep was shockingly close when he first noticed it. The structure rose a solid five stories in height and was constructed of cyclopean stonework with deep buttresses that spread out from the circular tower wall like tines on a gear. The tower immediately struck Arnold as unusual. It wasn't just that the stonework was well maintained. It was that it served no discernible purpose. There was no access point or doorway. The top of the tower also lacked any sort of defensive features, crenellations or hoardings. The structure was a meaningless monolith. As Arnold explored the perimeter of the stone pillar, two things grabbed his attention. First was a stony outcropping that jutted out from the hillside and overlooked the river. The drop of twenty feet to the river was, from what he could tell, clear of potential obstructions. Arnold had a momentary fantasy of sailing on a rope swing out over the river and letting the momentum of the swing carry him into the center of the water. The absence of a rope swing was just one more sign that Dragovista was a barren village, lacking the playfulness of children. The second thing Arnold noticed while exploring the perimeter of the tower was the corpse. The outstretched arms of the body showed clearly that the person had been nailed to a tree in a barbaric execution. Yet that was not the most disturbing thing about the corpse. The body was leathery and mummified, but in surprisingly good condition. Arnold could see the long teeth and long nails characteristic of a dried body. The expression on the face of the corpse was garish. It wasn't just that the eyes had been picked at by birds and the skin had blistered and peeled in places. What disturbed Arnold most about the dead man was the dozen or so thumb-thick vines that ran from the ground, up the trunk of the tree, and into the man's abdomen. Arnold shivered and returned to the stone outcrop overlooking the river. The branching, vascular network he had observed from the other side of the valley was even more obvious from this vantage point. In the last quarter mile, the mound ran parallel to the river directly to the spot Arnold was standing over. The doctor corrected himself, directly over the spot the tower was positioned over. There were no obvious entrances to the structure, but about twenty feet up there was an apparent window opening. A second window, set a further five yards up the tower, and a third indentation was visible near the top of the structure. Arnold trailed his fingers over the stonework. A wheezing sound caused him to jerk back in alarm. The sound was a pinched bladder, that somehow managed a cadence of human speech. Arnold looked about, 
trying to find the source of the sound, eventually identifying the origin as the crucified corpse. Arnold studied the crucifixion tree, hollow eye sockets looked back at him, and the body expelled sound. After a moment of consideration and cold sweat, Arnold rationalized the sound as freakish harmonics from wind bending its way between the corpse and the tree or through rotted cavities in the body. That he could feel no wind from the current position was a nagging point of concern, but not a direct contradiction to his hypothesis. Putting the vocalizing corpse out of his mind, Arnold studied the stonework. The Cyclopean masonry offered plentiful handholds. Arnold shook his head at the ridiculousness of it all. As a boy, he had climbed trees and played in the abandoned ruins of agricultural infrastructure. He and a group of friends had claimed the ruins of a train refueling depot as a fort. Half a dozen times, they had infiltrated an abandoned grain elevator, climbing the twenty stories on a ladder built into the core of the wooden structure. At the top of the elevator, one could look out over the whole of the town through knot holes in the siding. The dilapidated grain elevator had been colonized by thousands of pigeons, drawn by the abandoned mountains of corn and soybeans that had not been worth shoveling out in the transition to the new, mechanized tin structure. Across the open shaft of the elevator had been a beam, six inches wide, twenty feet long. Arnold and his friends had taken turns crossing the beam, screaming and waving arms to scare the pigeons into flight. By the hundreds, the birds would strike for a small ventilation opening at the far end of the beam. The panicked birds could be plucked from the mass and stuffed into shirts for the journey down the grain elevator. The descent, it was universally agreed, was the most dangerous stage. Each boy had to control a terrified pigeon which fought and clawed in its panic. Many boys had finished the descent with hundreds of shallow cuts from fecal matter-crusted talons. Invariably, the cuts would become infected and leave angry red scarration. Yet the claw cuts were secondary to the fear of falling. The descent had to be managed one-handed. Arnold vividly remembered his own descent. He had altered between a free hand and an elbow hooked over the wooden rung as he worked himself down the nearly 400 handholds. The boys used a different process for the climb down than was used on the ascent. The climb up was dictated by weight, with the lightest boy going first. The descent was carried out one at a time, so that should a boy fall, he wouldn't knock the others to their deaths. Arnold set his backpack against the tree and knelt to tighten the laces on his tennis shoes so that there would be no possible slippage. He unzipped a front pocket of his backpack and rooted around until he found a pen light. He slipped the light into his pocket alongside the knife. Arnold took a series of deep breaths to calm himself as the crucified corpse bleated like a deformed bagpipe. They hadn't even really wanted the pigeons, he recalled. There was always talk about training the birds to carry messages, but feral cats easily overcame whatever protective cage system they devised within a night or two. In college, Arnold had taken an anthropology class and acquired the language to understand that hellish climb as a rite of passage. It was a ritualized act of courage, denied to the younger boys. Indeed, seeing the retrieval of pigeons as a rite of passage helped to explain why the abandoned elevator had not been torn down, or locked, or fenced off. The city elders had left the wooden tower as an attractive nuisance, by design, and by intent. Arnold wondered how many generations of boys had lowered themselves rung by rung through the blackness, with a terrified animal ripping at their flesh, leaving scars that would last into late adulthood. Arnold studied the tower, looking for the easiest approach, concluding that the combination of a regular stonework and buttresses would be easy to scale. Handholds would be plentiful, and there would be no outcroppings to navigate. If he worked his way up next to a buttress, 
he would have an additional surface to press against if needed. On the other hand, he was in his early 40s, and his body was not what it had been when he was 12. The absence of a rope harness was concerning, but the first window opening was just barely outside the range that he felt would be safe. The first ten feet of the wall were easy. Arnold gave a moment to consider the way forward as he worked his way toward the arched window a quarter of the way up from the tower. As he neared the window, the stones were fitted more closely together, offering less friendly handholds. The wheezing of the corpse had shifted to honking bursts. Arnold found some small comfort that the sound had lost the cadence of human speech, replaced with something more steadily percussive. The first window was disappointingly little more than a niche. A small painting of a saint or other religious figure sat in the space. Arnold did not recognize the figure depicted in the painting, but assumed it was a local saint or martyr, given the painting was in the style of an icon. Arnold considered descending, but noted that the stonework comprising the inside of the niche was of a different type than the regular tower. Indeed, it looked closer to brickwork with crumbling mortar. Arnold speculated that the upper window would have been less likely to be bricked off, or perhaps would be in even worse condition due to greater exposure to the elements. The gap to the second window was easily scaled, and Arnold was pleased to see that his intuition had been at least partially correct. The second window was similarly closed off, with shoddy brickwork and sealed with a religious icon, yet Arnold found that with a bit of work, he could slide a brick free. Arnold peered into the tiny, dark opening. There was nothing to see. The tower smelled of rotten milk and dampness, but nothing unexpected. Arnold slid a hand into his pocket and searched out the pen light. He clicked the light on and put the metal tube between teeth as he positioned his head to look into the gap. The light was swallowed by the black. Arnold reached out to work a second brick loose. He closed his hand about the gray block and felt the squish of fingers against something moist. Jerking his hand back instinctively, Arnold was horrified to see a pair of small bulbous pods stuck to the middle and ring fingers. The pods wiggled side to side. Gaps in the outer bark of the pods exposed mushroom gills. Pain lanced up his arm. The burning of fire, the tingle of electricity took control of his nervous system. Arnold screamed and fell. The impact was a horrible mess of sensations. There was the crunch of bones as his body struck the Carpathian Mountain Stone. The loose mix of gravel and dirt held together by root networks, both living and dead, offered almost no cushioning to absorb the impact of the fall. Then there was the pain, which was indescribable in that so many parts of his body flared into agony in a single moment. There was the terrifying electrical tingle of damaged nerves. There was the convulsive gasps as unexpectedly deflated lungs tried to refill while the muscles that normally facilitated breathing were already flexed and could offer no aid. There was the hot swelling sensation of his brain compressed against the inside of his skull. Arnold screamed mentally, though the pain in his lungs could offer nothing to power his voice. As the initial shock receded, Arnold managed to turn his head to look at his hand. Arnold managed to sob, which sounded not unlike the vocal bellows of the crucified corpse. Sliding his uncontaminated hand into his pocket, Arnold managed to find his pocket knife. He worked the blade open with a single hand. With a whimper, he set blade to his fingertip and sliced the wiggling pod off of his middle finger and then off of his ring finger. The rush of blood and the hot sensation of cut flesh flooded up his arm, and Arnold gasped in relief. The pods flopped about. The bit of Arnold's finger that had still clung to the pods seemed to shrivel and dry. It took only a minute for the pods to extract the moisture from the bit of flesh. 
As the gray skin fell away, the pods extruded small runners that worked into the soil. Moments later, the thin runners seemed to pulse and bulge like stretched earthworms. The pods contracted into small round pellets, indistinguishable from bits of stone. Arnold pushed himself up and away from the things. His legs did not respond. Arnold took a deep breath. He had broken bones in the fall. He had almost certainly damaged his spinal cord. Possibly it could be repaired, but it was also possible that he had severed it somewhere in his mid-back and would never have the use of his legs again. Arnold fought down panic, trying to hold on to rational analysis. No one knew where he was, and any search would take hours, if not days. If he was bleeding internally, he would be dead. That was all but guaranteed. If he was not, he might survive. But survival would mean being alone and helpless in the shadow of that tower and those leech-like pods. Arnold looked at the crucified figure on the tree. The sounds pumping from the man's lungs came out as a staccato choking that hinted of laughter. As Arnold looked at the remnants of the man, the runner sprouting from the body took on new and terrifying meaning. Arnold let out a sob of understanding. He could not stay where he was. The pain he had felt while the tiny pods had burrowed into his fingertips had been agony, and the thought of enduring such again left him terrified. Arnold took a breath and flexed his fingers. His hands worked. He bent his arms at the elbow, testing his control. They worked well enough. Arnold considered his options and opted for a natural death over whatever unnatural end that tower might inflict upon him. It took considerable effort, but he managed to roll his body onto his belly. Arnold was able to reach out with his arms and pull himself forward, working away from the tower and toward the rocky outcropping. The sound of the river below gave him strength. Arnold imagined the collision with the cold water. He expected that he would strike his head on a rock in the fall or break his neck on impact. Regardless, he would be unable to keep himself afloat, and the current would quickly force him under. There would be several minutes of primal terror as water tried to fill his lungs and his muscles locked his esophagus shut. His lungs would burn like he had experienced as a child, competing against his older brother over who could hold their breath the longest. But there would be no way to expel the building carbon dioxide with the reactive seal on his esophagus. The burning would intensify, his body would begin to shut down from lack of oxygen. When his primal brain finally gave out, there would be an explosive burst of air venting from his lungs, and the cold water of the river would be drawn in, and his dying body would sink. Arnold did not fight the tears streaming down his face as he worked himself to the ledge. He didn't want to die, but he could not stay where he was. He could not. The slide over the edge happened faster than he had expected. He had no sense of how the weight of his body was distributed. He was falling, and then he was gone. There was darkness, and cold, and pain. There was so much pain that it was impossible to hold anything in his mind. There were voices, but he could not understand. One voice sounded familiar, but the words were not something his mind could follow. There was darkness, and warmth, and pain. The warmth was nice. It dulled the mind and made the voices seem very distant. The familiar voice was talking about moving someone to a hospital. Another voice, deep and dark, offered to provide treatment. There was a word spoken by the dark voice, Sholomance. The familiar voice had laughed. There had been yelling. There had been darkness. Arnold hurt in a way he had never experienced before. His body ached 
and burn from the inside out. He tried to roll over, and the heavy wool blanket that had been tucked about him came loose, causing him to shake as chills racked his body. Hands reached out and tucked the blanket back around him. I hoped you would wake soon. A man's voice, heavy with Romanian accent. Arnold shuddered and opened his eyes. The room was dark, except for the single candle burning on a small table by the bed. In a chair alongside the bed, Arnold could see the dark outline of a large man. At the man's feet, Arnold registered the golden spots of two pairs of wolf eyes. Oh, Arnold croaked. His lungs burned and his ribs screamed out in warning pain with each breath. I am Father Vadim Botescu. I was asked to care for you. Lupu, Arnold managed. The priest chuckled. Yes, people here call me Papa Lupu. It is a kind name, but I prefer Father Vadim. Arnold whimpered as a wave of pain rolled across his body. The priest leaned forward and placed a hand on Arnold's shoulder until the pain had ebbed. Tonight will be very bad, but it will pass. I fell, Arnold said. There was... Shh, the priest soothed him. How am I alive? Arnold croaked. Father Vadim patted Arnold gently on the shoulder. That is a story that is not easily explained to a man of science. The priest leaned back, picking up a small leather pack from the table. He unwound the string and withdrew a pipe. Are you a man of faith, Dr. Hunt? No, Arnold croaked. Tears were pouring from his eyes, and he tried to breathe through the pain. In the long run, that may be for the best, the priest replied, as he thumbed tobacco into his pipe. Your American friend, Mr. Pete, brought you to Dr. Reiter, but your body was broken beyond her ability to help. And so she brought you to me, and asked that I call upon other powers to save you. A miracle, Arnold whispered. He lacked strength to argue, or even cross-examine the priest. The priest lit a splint of wood from the candle and used it to carry a small yellow flame to his pipe. The effort involved a sucking sound and billows of gray smoke illuminated by the igniting fireball of tobacco peeking from the bowl of the pipe. Miracles are acts of God, Dr. Hunt, and God for all his many virtues is fickle in who he saves. I very much doubt that he would have bothered for you. Arnold chuckled. The priest sucked at his pipe. Dr. Reiter and I have an understanding. We do not always agree, and our methods are very different, but we both desire the same end. I did what I did because we cannot have you, an American, die here in Dragovista. Vadim was quiet for a time. I am sorry, Dr. Hunt. It was wrong to do this thing to a man without his consent. I knew it was wrong as I performed the ritual, but I felt I owed it to Dragovista. I am sorry. Arnold swallowed. The smoke was filling the room, and he could feel his throat filling with the protective mucus that further complicated his breathing. One of the large animals at the priest's feet stretched and began pacing around the room. The other let out a low whine and repositioned itself on the rug. What did you do to me? he whispered. Father Vadim withdrew a small flat stone from the leather pack that held his pipe and tobacco. He carefully balanced the pipe and the stone and rubbed at his bushy black beard. I was thirty-two when the rituals performed on me. The first twelve hours were the worst of my life, and I was dying of bone cancer when the priests of the Sholomanch performed the ceremony. Another wave of chills worked themselves upon Arnold's body. The doctor curled his body into a tight ball, favoring the tiny bit of preserved warmth over the pain of drawing himself into the fetal position. 
When the shaking passed, Arnold considered the impossibility of what had just happened. He vividly recalled bones breaking and the tingle of a spinal injury. Arnold slowly uncurled himself, wondering at a body that would respond to his will. As Arnold's own wailing subsided, he became aware of other voices crying out in agony. Dozens of voices in a growing chorus of pain. What's happening? Arnold managed to ask. The priest picked his pipe up and sucked at it, grumbling when the tobacco failed to respond. Father Vadim relit his pipe with a splint, seemingly unconcerned by the tortured shrieks that swirled about the rectory. Dragovista is a cursed village, the priest said. The people here are afflicted by a sort of parasite. The tower, Arnold asked. The priest shrugged and sucked at his pipe. That is where it started, but it has spread across the entire valley. Leave, Arnold responded. The number of shrieking voices seemed to be growing about him. Father Vadim shrugged. Some have tried, he conceded. The creature binds its victims to the land. The people out there tonight have been gorged upon by the parasite. The creatures feast until they are full. Then they send out little roots. These roots force themselves out through flesh and burn with a horrible pain until they are connected up with the central root system, extending out from the tower. The parasites give over nutrients to the central root system and then retract and continue to feed on the host. No, Arnold whimpered. He recalled enough of his evolutionary biology course as an undergraduate student to reject the possibility of such a creature. In his mind, the relation of each and every species was laid out in a neat hierarchical webbing, and nothing in all of creation resembled the evil described by the priest. It combined the worst horrors of the guinea worm with the evolved group dynamics of an ant colony. That can't be. Father Vadim nodded. It should not be, he agreed. I wish it were otherwise. But our country had a difficult birth, and many things were tried to keep the people compliant. The priest finally managed to get the ball of tobacco stuffed into his pipe, burning steadily. He sucked from the stem, keeping an even balance of smoke curling from the bowl and his mouth. After a time, the priest followed up on his earlier musings. In 1907, there was an uprising in Moldovia, Wallachia, and Olynthia. It was chaos. The military was called out, and some claim more than 10,000 peasants were slaughtered, while an equal number were arrested, and beaten, and imprisoned. The entire country was in chaos. It was a panic. The government tried reforms, but the landholders were powerful. Father Vadim sucked at his pipe. The Sholomans tried something different. They developed a biological contract that would bind the peasants to the land so that no landlord could displace them. It was tried in only a few villages, but it was unconscionably monstrous. The creature that was to connect the peasants to the land was always hungry. It grew and became powerful, and in the fullness of its power, it became sadistic. Arnold was only half listening as the priest recounted the history of Romania. His mind was focused on breathing through the queer sensation of his insides rearranging themselves. He had no idea what the Sholomance was or how it could have genetically engineered an organism, given the state of scientific knowledge at the start of the 20th century. Arnold was fuzzily aware that the priest continued to talk but his mind was blurring, and he slipped into unconsciousness. A thick blanket of pipe smoke had dissipated. Arnold scanned the room, looking for a light source. There was a bit of starlight filtering in through a window, 
but it was sufficient to fully illuminate the room. A small figure rocked back and forth in the chair next to the bed. Arnold scanned for the pair of wolves and found only one. It was the leaner of the two, gray with coarse black highlights. The other animal, black with a salting of white, was nowhere to be seen. Dr. Ryder? Arnold croaked. He was surprised to find his voice was stronger. The pain still made him nauseated, but breathing was less of a struggle. The woman lifted her head as if pulling herself out of sleep. She yawned. Boo-Boo said that you would probably sleep, but he didn't want you to be alone. Thank you, Arnold said, trying to deduce how much time must have passed for the priest to leave and the old woman to take his place at vigil. Arnold nodded, although he regretted it as the movement hurt his bruised brain. I waited for you, he said. I wanted to examine some of the villagers. Arnold exhaled slowly, trying to keep his head steady. I should have waited. Agrippina clucked. The people of Dragavista do not trust doctors, and they very much do not trust me. Why not? Arnold asked. The old woman rocked her chair back and forth several dozen times before she responded. Bupu said that he told you about the curse, Agrippina said carefully. The people of this town have good reason to fear outside doctors. It was outsiders posing as doctors that brought the curse to Dragovista. Many years later, my husband and I arrived in Dragovista with medical credentials and promises that our medicines could help stop miscarriages. Arnold pushed himself up in bed into something that felt like a sitting position. Is that why there haven't been births in the village? Agrippina smiled a bitter smile. I suppose it is a small risk to tell you. You don't speak any Romanian, and neither of us have any place to go. Also, I think that in the morning you will leave Dragovista and never return here. She rocked for a minute, as if rolling around in her mind where to start her story. My husband and I were sent to this village by the government. The fertility rate in Dragovista had been falling for years. We were part of a task force to provide better prenatal care to rural areas and to root out local witches that might be doing abortion. Even in the dim light, Arnold could see the muscles of her face struggling with the sadness of the memory. We were infected that first night, and the mystery of Dragovista was answered. There was no witch brewing potions made from rue. It was just a parasite, nothing more. For years we tried to find a way to purge the parasite from our bodies. We experimented on each other in secret, but we lacked the kind of facilities needed to do a real surgery. Agrippina shook her head. Age has hidden the scars, but my abdomen once had dozens of cuts. But all of our medical knowledge was unable to free us from the grip of the parasite. Oh, Agrippina, Arnold said in a whisper, I'm so sorry. The old woman nodded, rocking away in her chair. The gray wolf thumped its tail in rhythm to the movement of the chair. In 1985, Ceausescu announced that women must have five children or face a fine. There was a panic in Dragovista and the village leaders came to my husband and begged him to help. He told them that he knew of a medical procedure that could increase a man's virility and make his sperm stronger. The peasants had no medical knowledge of human biology, but they trusted what Stefan had told them. My husband performed vasectomies on every man in Dragovista in a single week. It was a masterstroke. He delivered a slow death to the parasite that for years we had sought to cut from our own bodies. Arnold fought the urge to shake his head. He considered the evil calculus behind such an action. His first instinct was revulsion, yet when he looked at the bandages on his own hand, 
where he had sliced off the pads of his own fingers, he felt a flicker of understanding. What happened? Arnold asked, sensing the old woman's story had several more layers left to unfold. Agrippina made a sucking sound with her lips, then she stood. I know Papa Lupu keeps whining about the house, she said. The old woman spent a few minutes rooting through cabinets before she found a mostly full bottle. She worked the cork loose with snarled Romanian words that Arnold assumed were curses. Agrippina continued rooting through the cupboards until she found a tin mug. She returned to the rocking chair and filled the mug. As she rocked, Arnold noted the chair had shifted toward the tail of the wolf-like creature. Arnold offered a warning. The woman seemed unable to see the animal, but she did shift her chair back. It was not until the first mug of red wine had been drunk and replaced that Agrippina continued her story. The priest led the mob to our house, she said flatly. Father Seltredat demanded that Stefan surrender himself to the people and pay for his sins. The mob would have burnt our house down with us inside, so Stefan gave himself up. It was a brave thing to do, but I hate him for leaving me here all alone in this hell. Agrippina drank heavily from her mug. I would share, she explained, but you are sick and are hallucinating. You should drink broth. I am poor and the widow, so I drink what I please. You don't have to tell me anymore, Arnold said. I, I think I understand. Agrippina sneered at him. The priest took Stefan up to the tower in the hills. Do you know the one? She asked. Arnold nodded ever so slightly before he realized that she couldn't see him. Yes, he said, as steadily as he could manage. I thought you would, she said. They crucified my Stefan on a tree close to the tower where the creature could feed on him. Arnold could see the glint of starlight as a caught in the wet lines pouring down Agrippina's face. Father Seltrudat stationed the men about my husband to make sure that I could not cut him free. They stood sentry for days while the creature fed. Arnold found himself speechless. He had cultivated a soft bedside manner in over a decade of medical practice and had never before found himself unable to conjure words of sympathy. The desperate barbarism of the village left him feeling empty and exhausted. He wondered if the corpse he had seen near the tower was Stefan, or if it was some other who had run afoul of the village. He wondered if Agrippina had eventually been able to bury her husband, or if the thing had burrowed itself so deep into the corpse that there was no extricating it. Arnold recalled the cries of that corpse with its bagpiped lungs and foul mimicry of human speech. Fire. I'm going to burn it all with fire. Can I tell you a secret, Dr. Hunt? Agrippina asked. I think so, Arnold said. I waited for Stefan's name day. Almost six months. Then I went to visit the priest. He was not as big a man as Papa Lupu, but he was bigger than me. So when his back was turned, I stabbed him through the shirt with a needle. It was a strong sedative, and when he was on the ground, I was able to kill him with a pillow. Arnold listened. There was nothing to say. It all made him feel sick. Do you think I was wrong? She asked. Arnold considered. In general, he said, as philosophically as he could manage through the pain, two wrongs don't make a right. There are so many wrongs here in Dragovista that I don't know what right would even look like. Agrippina nodded. I think you have dropped your coin, Dr. Hunt. Arnold frowned. It's a Romanian saying. Perhaps it does not translate.
The sun was soft on the horizon when Arnold and Father Vadim left the rectory. Arnold had woken up with a bit of residual soreness, but otherwise feeling stronger than he had felt in years. He was pleased to find that he didn't feel the itch for amphetamines that had been dogging him for most of the week. The gray wolf had settled itself at the foot of the bed, and Arnold tried not to disturb the creature as he worked himself free of the blankets. He had been pleased to find that his legs could support his weight, and had taken a couple tentative steps around the room when Father Vadim had entered. The priest looked the doctor over and instructed him to turn around. The priest's fingers poked and prodded at Arnold's spine, while the man muttered in Romanian. Is everything okay? Arnold had asked. The response had been that the flesh had resealed and would likely not leave a scar. Arnold had assumed that the priest's English was less functional in medical matters, as the assessment had been nonsensical. They had eaten breakfast together. The priest had cooked a large omelet loaded with peppers, onions, mushrooms, and lumps of homemade cheese. Arnold had found himself to be ravenous as he sat upon the omelet, stuffing bits of dried bread into his mouth between bites. The meal was passed with empty conversation. Arnold was enjoying the sensation of being alive. The curious sense of joy served to push the events of the previous day from his mind. It wasn't a conscious decision. Rather, it was a subconscious pain-avoidance instinct. Arnold only became aware of the extreme level of disassociation his mind was maintaining when the priest suggested that they take a post-breakfast walk. Panic resurfaced as Arnold thought of the massive parasite that had taken over the entire village as its host. The wolves followed along as they struck out along a dirt path, running between fields and angling up toward the wooded hills. Arnold marveled at how rich the air smelled. It was nearly intoxicating with the smells of life. He had kept up to date on the new developments in cochlear implants, and he was reminded of how subjects described the world post-surgery. It was as if new sensations were layered on top of the otherwise familiar. The most mundane thing suddenly had felt fascinating and terrifying. Your friend Pete will return for you soon, Father Verdine commented. He will take you away from here, perhaps never to return. Arnold nodded. He had seen enough of the village to know that there was nothing he could offer to the people of Dragovista, and there was nothing to hold him to Romania. They walked on for long minutes in silence. As they crossed the tree line, the priest spoke. This will be difficult. At the Sholomans, we spend a year and a day in darkness and contemplation, coming to terms with our new selves. For you, it will be difficult, for you will be in the light, and you will be alone. Arnold shrugged. I have friends back in the United States. The priest reached down and petted the black wolf, rubbing the creature's neck. The wolf responded by biting playfully at the extended hand. But they are not like you and me, Vadim said. They are not Stryogi, shape-changers. Arnold chuckled. I think you lost me. Is that a Romanian idiom? Arnold asked. The priest's face was hard. Arnold walked on, but after a bit noticed that Father Vadim had not followed. He turned back to look at the priest and saw the man was naked. Father Vadim had stripped off his clothing and carefully folded the various articles. He placed a bundle of clothes at the base of a large tree and faced Arnold. The black wolf circled the priest. On its second pass about the man, it leapt. The merger was almost instantaneous. The priest's body seemed to simultaneously curl in on itself and unfurl as the wolf became the form of a man. Arnold yelped in surprise and tried to put distance between himself and the black-haired wolf man. The creature was fast. It flanked Arnold in two bounds, cutting off his retreat. Arnold shifted direction and found himself blocked again. He looked about for a stick or a stone or something he could use as a weapon, 
The gray wolf was snarling in terror, mirroring Arnold's own emotions. The doctor darted left and was cut off. The creature circled, driving Arnold and the gray wolf closer together. The moment of contact between the fleeing and panicked pair was not anticipated. The gray wolf jerked back in fear, pressing itself against Arnold's leg. Arnold was knocked off balance. He reached down to steady himself, hand closing on a fistful of fur. The combination of contact and terror catalyzed the transformation. For the briefest moment, Arnold could see through two pairs of eyes. He could feel the earth beneath six feet. It was just a moment of distortion, and then it was resolved. As he leaned forward, Arnold felt claws dig into the earth, steadying him. He wheeled to track the movements of his attacker and felt the coordinated dance of his four legs. Panic gripped him, and he tried to jerk back from the transformation. For a moment, he felt himself fully separate from the wolf, and then, a moment later, he was re-merging, bones splintering and reforming into something between wolf and man. There was pain, but there was something else as well. Arnold tried to understand the transformation of his physiology as he both fought and embraced the merger with the wolf. The superficial changes brought pain. Indeed, there was genuine agony in the change. Yet, Arnold focused his attention on pinpointing the effects of the process on his brain. He leaned into the agony of the change, accepting and then reversing and then accepting each change until he understood the process. His neocortex, the logical human part of him, seemed to remain unaffected. He could recall his memories, reason, think abstractly, manage language. The man was still present. His limbic system seemed elevated. Arnold had an uncle who regularly sought out bar fights. Something about alcohol unleashed a rage and violence in the man. This new impulsiveness was beyond even that pathology. Arnold now saw himself not just as a predator, but as a primal embodiment of his uncle's rage. Terror and heat of the fight thrilled him. It was a seductive bell sounding throughout his entire body. The reptilian complex was that of the wolf. He felt his tongue lolling out as he instinctively panted to vent heat. Arnold tried to process the terror and felt panic take hold. His colt bristled and he snapped his long jaw in a display of aggression. Then the neocortex asserted control over the wolf and the rage. The beast would bend to the man. The beast would submit. The black wolf creature darted up the dirt trail into the hills. Arnold followed, throwing himself into a run, his hind legs powering him forward, while his forward limbs managed the momentum, steering his body with a deftness and control that he would previously have found impossible. They ran together through the foothills of the Carpathians, breaking from trails and roaming free. The ascent was brutal, but Arnold determined to keep up the chase, to push his new form to the limits of what it could do. He followed the black wolf to a stone outcropping that looked out over the poorly maintained road. Off in the distance, Arnold could see the green speck of a trabi working its way slowly through the Carpathian foothills. The East German car was followed by a red and white ambulance. Your friend, I think, Father Vadim said, once again in the form of a man. Arnold nodded, his own body separating from that of the wolf. He didn't look at the priest, not wanting to acknowledge the man's nakedness, or his own. He had a loose image of his clothing shredding in the first moments of the change. Do you see the raised mounds on the valley floor? The priest asked, pointing out at the valley below. He highlighted the main branch of the root network, as well as the recent disintegration of peripheral forks and branches. My order made a mistake in Dragovista, the priest said quietly. And now I fear that I am making a similar mistake with you, Dr. Hunt. I am loosing a creature into the world, and I do not know the long-term consequences of my action. Arnold nodded in understanding. Is it evil? he asked, and then clarified. The, the thing inside of me. 
Arnold glanced down at the creature next to him. It was panting, and it had a look of pure delight. The wolf bit at his hand playfully. Father Vadim raised his arms in a dramatic shrug to indicate it was a difficult question. That term evil does not have meaning to our kind. Arnold furrowed his brow in confusion at the answer, but recalled the delicate balance he had felt between the primal and the rational mind. It will be hard for you, the priest continued. You are Streogi, and the thing within you will become powerful. And at the Sholomans we spend a year coming to terms with what we have become, and we are forever bound in obedience to the Sholomans. Our morality, if such as us have morality, is derived from our community. It is the pack that holds us in check and gives us meaning. But you, Dr. Hunt, will be alone. You shouldn't have done it, Arnold said. You should have let me die. Probably, came the flat reply. The two men stood watching the tiny metallic green beetle that was the Travi crawling through a particularly bad section of road. If we hurry, Father Vadim said, we can make it back to Dragavista before he arrives. I have clothing that will fit you at my home. Arnold nodded. The wolf yipped in excitement, and Arnold looked down at the gray wolf that had become his companion. When Arnold lifted his eyes, the priest was gone. Arnold Hunt's efforts to manage his changed nature as Thryogi will be explored in the final episode, The Argentine Correspondence. Until then, there are many more adventures to play out. The next story, which will be out in early June, returns to the travels of Jim Galgadet. <laughs>